Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be going through some of my responses to uh, some at Soteriology 101, such as Leighton Flowers, who argue that Jeremiah 18 is the Old Testament text that is used behind Paul's use of the potter and the clay motif in Romans 9. If you appreciate this content or any of the other content we put out here at the Freed Thinker podcast and blog, please consider becoming a patron. You can support us by heading over to patreon.com. You can find us there uh, to become a sponsor, or you can click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog page where you likely found this link. If you subscribe to us on iTunes and you just get automatic um, updates there, please head on over to freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Click on the Become a Sponsor there, or you can again find us on Patreon. As always, if you appreciate uh, the content here and want to engage in the conversation, head on over to the Freed Thinker Facebook group page. Also, I'd love some feedback. If you give me uh, any feedback on the, if you like the longer content that I've been running uh, or some of the Freed Way Thinker, the, some of the shorter uh, uh, quick bite content, uh, I'd appreciate that as well. And as always, I appreciate any reviews or ratings that you can give over on iTunes such as from Bison, gave this review from explaining hard anti-Calvinist text to a deeper understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. The podcast is solid and worthy of listening. In my top three, three logical podcasts to keep on hand right next to the Reform Forum and the Kuyperian Commentary Podcast. Keep up the good work, Tyler Vela. Thank you so much, Bison, for the review. That's, uh, I mean, right next to Reform Forum and Kuyperian. Uh, that's, uh, that's a huge compliment, so I appreciate that. So with that, let's dive right into the episode and deal with Jeremiah 18 and whether it is the right background for Paul's use of the potter and clay motif in Romans 9. Enjoy the show. So is Jeremiah 18 the Old Testament text behind Paul's use of the potter and clay motif in Romans 9, 19 through 24? Introduction. In discussions of the soteriological systems and which is best supported by an exegetically informed study of the scriptures, possibly no single passage comes under as much discussion as Romans 9, ranging from issues of predestination, calling, election, reprobation, responsibility, and so forth, Romans 9 is a Gordian knot of debates over concepts and issues that have raged since at least the time of Augustine, and even in germinal form before. 
For the purposes of this podcast, I'm only going to be looking at one of those issues, and even still a very small aspect of that issue, namely, what is the textual background of Paul's use of the potter and clay motif, that is, I'm going to keep saying PCM, in his answer to his interlocutor in 9:19 through 24. One should not expect a full treatment of the theology of Romans 9 in relation to the above topics, or even how 9, 19-24 interweaves the theology of all of Romans 9, or even what role it plays in the overall argument which Paul is making therein. I'm here concerned exclusively with the question of which passage or passages should be considered the proper background text or texts for the Paul's use of the PCM in 9, 19-24. The passage reads, and this is from the NASB. Quote, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. End quote. <clears throat> Backgrounds. While the overwhelming majority of scholars and exegetical commentaries will hold to views very similar to the one which I am presenting here, a vocal minority of provisionists and modified Arminians have started challenging the historical and near-consensus interpretation of this passage, even in ways that the minority academic view would not. The reasons that they use to warrant their views are often guilty of a manifold uh, compound fallacies or errors in reasoning ranging from hermeneutical issues in which parables or symbols are used as the grid through which to understand clearer didactic teaching, to the pressing of every aspect of an Old Testament passage and its context into the meaning of the New Testament passage, a kind of narratival or contextual illegitimate totality transfer, and an assumption of a theological autonomy of the condition of man prior to coming to the text. Unfortunately, due to time and space constraints, I will not be addressing even all the arguments and positions presented by them to defend their overall view of Romans 8 and 9, nor will I be able to offer a rejoinder to them all here, though I may touch on them in passing. Again, the only area of inquiry that this present episode will be addressing is the textual background, Old Testament or otherwise, which plausibly informs Paul's use of the PCM in Romans 9, 19 through 24. For provisionists like Leighton Flowers and others, the primary, if not singular, reference point for the PCM in Romans 9, 19 to 24 is Jeremiah 18. In his article, online article entitled, Who Are You, O Man?, Flowers writes, quote, in this text, Paul was likely drawing upon the analogy introduced by God through the prophet Jeremiah, end quote, and then goes on to cite Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The passage reads, quote, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as he seemed best to him. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in the hand, in my hand, O Israel. End quote. Flowers then goes on to draw a direct meaning for Romans 9, 21 and following from Jeremiah 18 by saying things like, quote, Paul's fellow countrymen, like their fathers before them, were flawed pots in the hands of the potter, end quote. For flowers, the process of the clay being flawed and able to choose in the Jeremiah 18 uh, forms the conceptual framework which he believes that we find in Romans 9. By the way, Flowers already makes a questionable philosophical imposition on even the Jeremiah 18 text when he attempts to apply it to the soteriological, anthropological, anthrop- uh, the anthropological considerations of the nature of the will in Jeremiah 18, which concerns ministerial and magisterial use of the people, much like how Paul uses it in 2 Timothy 2.20. In addition, it's not even clear that the metaphysical reality of what causes sin was even in consideration in the living parable in Jeremiah. Now, Flowers makes much of the PCM in Jeremiah 18 and tries to get freedom from pottery when he says that if Calvinism were true, then it would mean that God would have been the one who intentionally broke the pot just to rebuild it. And that, since the clay represents Israel, then it's obvious that, quote, the spoiling or callousing is a direct result of their own rebellious choices over the years, not the molding of the potter, end quote. Several problems can readily be seen from this simply in terms of Flower's hermeneutical method. As stated above, there is a strange kind of interpretive grid where the parable or symbol is pressed on all its terms to have theologically significant meaning, adding to the overall thrust of the PCM used later in the New Testament. That is, for flowers, every single aspect of the PCM in Jeremiah 18 must have theologically significant meaning to it, and that these theological extrapolations are to be employed for every use of the PCM elsewhere. By the way, he does the same thing with the parables uh, that Jesus teaches Um, So this is not uncommon criticism that that we Reformed have for Flowers and his approach to the text. Back Back to what we were talking about. This is why the ruining of the clay in the potter's hands is attempted to mean something procedurally about how and why this clay is spoiled in Romans 9. That Israel is given an imperatival command to act in response is pressed back into the clay having a metaphysical ability to choose to have done otherwise, etc., This kind of handling of parables and symbols is opposed by nearly every hermeneutics textbook that follows any version of a responsible historical grammatical method as opposed to an allegorical one. Unless flowers would like us to swim the Tiber back to Rome, and early Rome at that, and officially adopt an allegorical hermeneutic, as well as just to be honest and upfront that this is what his method is, this kind of reasoning and reading is clearly reckless. It is simply inappropriate in hermeneutics to attempt to press every aspect of a parable or a symbol into a theologically or metaphysically significant, indeed, even a systematically foundational concept. Even if the above hermeneutical problem was overcome by flowers, however, another comes quickly on its heels. 
While the context of the Old Testament passage being quoted, cited, or alluded to by a New Testament author can be helpful, we must never think that the New Testament meaning of a passage is wholly or entirely or exhaustively dependent on it. The New Testament can use Old Testament passages in illusory, illustrative, predictive, or typological ways. We can think of the clear example of Hosea 11.1 that reads, Out of Egypt I have called my son, which was a historical present referring to a temporarily past Exodus event from the time that Hosea write, already a historical event in the day of Hosea. Yet when we arrive at Matthew's gospel, the calling of the son out of Egypt functions typologically as a shadow of Christ where he relocated from a family foray into Egypt. While the typological shadows of the expectation of the Messiah is evident already in the context of Hosea, it would be invalid to take every jot and tittle of Hosea 11 as a direct theological allegory for some specific feature of the coming of Christ out of Egypt. This is merely one of the countless examples to demonstrate that the assumption that a contextual or historical meanings of a source Old Testament text must map directly conceptually on a New Testament text must be false. Furthermore, even beyond these large hermeneutical problems with Flowers' attempt to shoehorn Jeremiah 18.1-6 into Romans 9, the main question before us is yet to be addressed. Is Paul even alluding to Jeremiah 18 to begin with? Here I will lay out the case for the simple and clear answer of no. Jeremiah 18 simply is almost certainly not the passage that Paul was alluding to when he used the PCM in Romans 9 21 and following. I'll now turn to several of the other reasons for this and what passages Paul almost certainly was drawing from for his PCM. Biblical context. Following the challenge of his hypothetical interlocutor in Romans 9:19, Paul appears to rely on Job 32:12 from the Septuagint for his initial response in Romans 9:20. He poses it in the form of an interrogative: Who are you to debate? That's Antipokrinomenos with God, which is precisely the same term used in Job 32.12 from the Septuagint, and the only places that they're really used. Job's encounter with God leaves him speechless and unable to challenge God on being able to do whatever he wishes with his own creation. Job's friend tells Job that he must admit the absolute right of the Creator to judge him without argument. Here, Paul setting the conceptual stage as that of a dichotomous challenge between God and man, creator and creature. At this point, Flowers would have, have us believe that Paul switches gears and moves into a vague illusion of Jeremiah 18, 1-6 based almost solely on the existence of the PCM. The main problem with Flowers' connection to Jeremiah 18 is that Jeremiah 18 has no textual, grammatical, or lexical connections to what Paul says in Romans 9, 20 and following. Not only that, when even a little bit of primary text analysis is done, other PCM passages do have those affinities with Romans 9. That passage it primarily is Isaiah 29:16, which reads, quote, "...shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay?" That what is made shall say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. End quote. Paul's question, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it, is a near verbatim quote of the Isaiah passage. 
Paul admittedly alters the question slightly, but does so in a way seemingly in accord with the interrogative found later in Isaiah 45, 9b. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing, or why, or, or the thing to the maker, he has no hands? End quote which is found in the context of cursing those who think they can challenge God's right to do with his creation as he wishes. The very thing Paul's interlocutor appears to be doing in his protest that God would be unfair in for willing the destinies of his own creations. Notice that in Isaiah 45, 9, that the curse begins with, quote, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth, end quote. And then continues in verse 10, quote, Woe to him who says to the father, who, uh, what are you begetting? Or to the, a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts." End quote. The context of Isaiah 45 cannot be clearer concerning God's absolute sovereign prerogative to do with his creation what he wishes, and such a free prerogative of God is based on him being the creator. For the Jew, that God was creator just was a fact that gave him sole and unimpeachable right to do whatever he deemed best with his own creation. As a child cannot, indeed has no ability to do, challenge the father on begetting him, so too the Lord has the right to the work of his hands, which he has ordained. We can even ask if the assumption of Isaiah 29 and 45 were that of the libertarian, as flowers would have us believe, then why is the question ostensibly, why did you make me like this, What or what are you making, rather than the statement, you did not make me like this to begin with, I chose it. Isaiah seems to clearly be working from a view of humanity as utterly dependent rather than autonomous in our being, nature, and will. God's creation, then, in virtue of being his creation, is theonomic rather than autonomous. Furthermore, Paul's allusion to Job 9 should help frame our understanding of the kind of response that Paul would expect us to give. Like Job, Paul expects his reader, who may have sympathies with his interlocutor, to retract the complaint and admit God's absolute sovereign right to rule and do with his creation as he wishes, such as Job 9.12 and 42.1-6. While some commentators, i.e. Seifred, give a nod to the PCM conceptual similarities to Jeremiah 18 from Romans 9, all seem to subsume it under Paul's primary concern, which was not the question of God's power to form the clay for his purposes, which was the main issue in Jeremiah 18, but rather over his authority or his right as a just creator to do whatever he desires with his creation as he pleases, which is what was the context of the Isaiah passages and, again, of Romans 9. We can see this in the black and white way Paul speaks of the determined destinies of the vessels. 
unlike in Jeremiah 18 and the conditional outcomes for Israel depending on if they are obedient or not, in which God may or may not relent of his plans for them. In Jeremiah 18, there is one lump of clay and only one vessel as the outcome. Depending on the obedience of the Israelites, God would either form them into a vessel for noble use or for common use. That is, the lump of clay already is Israel, and the question is what kind of thing will they become within the work of God for redemption? However, in Romans 9, there is one lump but two different kinds of vessels that are drawn from it, conditioned only on what God wills to make from them, what he has predestined to make from them, as he did with Jacob and Esau, before their birth, before they had chosen to do good or evil. Their destinies are determined by God's good pleasure and are not contingent on their moral performance. As just stated, this pictures the kind of sovereign choice of God between Jacob and Esau. From one womb came two vessels, and their status was based on God's right to choose even before they were born and expressly before they had done anything good or evil, i.e. obedient or disobedient. Paul's inductive argument being built in Romans 8 through 11 has already has already established God's absolute sovereign right to choose for his purposes, not contingent upon our moral performance or our will, and that God is not unfair in doing so, such as Romans 4, 9, 14 to 18. Having shown that the choice itself is not unfair, Paul now shifts to the objection that holding his creation accountable or at fault for sin, if God has willed or determined it, would then be unthinkable. Paul brings in the PCM to show that God as creator has the right to do whatever he wishes with his creation, including holding them accountable and expressing his wrath against objects which he fashioned to be objects of wrath. As a side note, uh, here I'm not going to address in many of the philosophical justifications for such a view in which fatalism or hard determinism is avoided and moral responsibility is established. For more on that, you can see a book by uh, Guillaume Bignon, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, which is an excellent, uh, excellent work on, on that topic. Here, it should also be noted as well that Paul is clearly interested in the destinies of the individual and not of the nation of Israel corporately. This also is evidence that Paul is drawing from the context of Job and Isaiah rather than Jeremiah 18. For while Paul does use the plural skewe or vessels in 9.23, his singular use of skewos or vessel already in 9.21 shows that his turn is not corporate but collectivist for the group of individuals specifically rather than, for, uh, rather than corporate for a faceless generic whole. In addition, the only concepts in all of Romans 8 through 11, which can even be reasonably considered to correspond to the symbols of common and honorable vessels in the PCM, are that of salvation and judgment. Indeed, Paul expressly calls them objects of mercy and wrath, terms that are exclusively soteriological rather than ministerial throughout Romans. We see this further in precisely that the original lump of clay does seem to be a kind of faceless or generic humanity, while out of it he creates many vessels individually of mercy or wrath. 
It seems that the provisionist must concede this point as well, unless they want to move into some manner of non-individual salvation or judgment, something they would be loath to do as personal or individual culpability is vital to their understanding of the nature of the will, which they're pushing in Romans 9 to begin with. Schreiner here makes an, a, a note. Quote, it's apropos to call, recall that the issue informing all of Romans 9 through 11 is salvation. The historical destiny of the nations alone hardly answers the question that provoked the entire discussions. Why will many in Israel, why many in Israel are unsaved? Next, Paul's use of plasma or the formed thing from plasso or to form also helps solidify the case being made thus far. Many of the Old Testament and extra-biblical texts which employ the PCM other than Jeremiah 18 do so in relationship to God as creator. It's precisely God being creator or the former, not in the previous, but the one who forms, that his right to do with his creation or that which he formed as he pleases is rooted in the text and we observe the connection to Plasso to God's creational activities and his absolute right as creator in passages of the Septuagint like Job's 10, 8-9, through 9, Psalm 33, 2 Maccabees 7, 23, and Josephus in Antiquities Book 1. Extra-biblical content. In addition to biblical texts, there are very similar uses of the PCM and the absolute right of God as creator found throughout extra-biblical literature as well, though the precise use among Jewish sources is diverse. In Wisdom of Solomon chapter 12, there's a clear doxological adoration of God for his right to judge the wicked and to have them triumph for the purposes of God's own justice. In fact, Paul's terms come scandalously close to Wisdom of Solomon chapter 15, 7 to 13, when it speaks of the absolute right of the potter who can make the clean vessels and even what it calls the opposite, referring to the idols themselves. Sirach 33, 10 to 15 likewise uses the PCM, showing that God's knowledge and purposes are the cause of the separation of humanity. This passage reads, quote, some of them God made high and great days, and some of them he put in the number of ordinary days. And all men are found from the ground and out of the earth from whence Adam was created. With much knowledge the Lord hath divided them and diversified their ways. Some of them hath he blessed and exalted, and some of them hath he sanctified and set near himself. And some of them hath he cursed and brought low and turned them from their station." As the potter's clay is in his hand to fashion and order it, all his ways are according to his ordering. So man is in the hand of him that made him, and he will render to him according to his judgment. God, uh, good is set against evil and life against death. So also is the sinner against a just man. And so look upon all the works of the Most High, two and two and one against another. End quote. We can notice here that just as God is the one who determines the number of days that we shall live, in the same way, it is God who divides and diversifies not only their kind, but their ways, tied specifically to sin and justice in verse 15. Sirach uses the PCM to illustrate this point. Like the potter determining the destiny of the clay, so too, all of man by nature, as well as his ways, are according to God's orderings, and that God is still free and just to render to man according to his own justice and judgment. 
In addition, in Pseudophilo 5313, Eli uses the same question, quote, can the thing formed answer him that formed it, end quote, as part of his humble acceptance of God's judgment over his own house. We can also see the same thing in numerous Qumranic hymns in which humans are seen and understood to be mere clay under the divine right to create, rule, and judge as he pleases. And I can give a number of references there. Summary. In his commentary on Romans, Moo says that the question of the Old Testament and relevant Jewish texts which undergird Paul's use of the PCM may be impossible to know for sure and are likely, in the end, immaterial to how Paul himself is using the motif. We can read that in Moo's commentary, page 603. This sentiment seems to be shared by Longnecker, who writes only one sentence supported by a single footnote concerning the backgrounds of the PCM in verse 20, though he too seems to think that the connection to God as creator is vital to Paul's use of the PCM here. And you can see that in Long- on Longnecker, page 819, or you can also cross-reference Schreiner's commentary on Romans, page 515. I'm ambivalent about this kind of statement, especially considering that Moo and Schreiner had themselves already made a strong case for it not being derived from Jeremiah 18. However, I can readily and emphatically agree that while these kinds of background analyses are important to our exegetical efforts to stave off aberrant conclusions drawn from illegitimate inferences from nominally related passages, such as what the provisionists do from Jeremiah 18, or from totally irrelevant passages, such as what others do, our exegetical conclusions should be primarily weighted toward how Paul himself employs and nuances his own use of the given motif. Like his use of the slave or servant motif, Paul seems to have a multivocal use of the PCM in his epistles, and and his use of it in Romans 9 is clearly different than his use of it in 2 Timothy 2.20. Thankfully, Paul does say enough in verses surrounding 9.19-24, which colors how we should understand his use of the PCM within that context, without needing much input from the source texts. This is not always the case, and often an allusion is made pure and without comment, and more exegetical and background spade work is in fact needed. However, I believe at this point the case has been made compellingly that not only is Jeremiah 18 not the primary or secondary or even tertiary source for Paul's use of the PCM in Romans 9, but also, therefore, that the implication drawn from such a position that it is that Paul is driving it from Jeremiah 18 made by the provisionists concerning the will of man as autonomous and causally primary to what kind of vessel they become are therefore equally implausible. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can stop on by the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining. Good night, and God bless.